Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Acts, the meeting at Jerusalem is wrestling with the question, what do Gentiles need to do to be saved? Then James and Peter respond and put the question to rest once and for all. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 15, verse 7. Once again, that's Acts chapter 15, verse 7. And so it says, verse 7, and when there had been much disputing, apparently these Pharisees who were believers who loved the Lord, but were sincerely wrong, they were there at the meeting too, and they were objecting. And as the meeting were on, the staff wasn't getting anywhere. And so Peter, he decides to remind them that, you know what? God already answered this question a while ago. And so Peter, it says in verse 7, he rose up and he said unto them, men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago, God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. This is crazy because Peter's coming out and he's saying, why are we even talking about this? He tells him, he says, you know, this is not secret information. You know how that a good while ago, God made choice. That phrase there means God showed his favor or his attitude towards what Paul and Barnabas have been teaching. He showed his favor towards this idea of Gentiles getting saved just as they are. He already showed that he was in favor of that. That the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) That's the gospel in a nutshell right there. All anyone has to do with our message is receive it. It's that simple. That can't be that simple. Turn over Romans 10. Romans 10, verses 6 to 13. And Paul explains, but the righteousness which is of faith, it speaks on this wise. It tells us, don't say in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven? What do I have to do to get up there? That is to bring Christ down from above. In other words, the Pharisees, they had done that in the past, but how they had done that was they lowered the standard. They took the standard of Christ and they brought it down to a level where they felt like they could achieve it. That's what the Sermon on the Mount exists for. He said, hey, You've heard it said that if you commit adultery, you know, that's bad. But I say unto you, if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart already. Hey, you've heard it said that if you commit murder, no good. But I say unto you, if you have hatred in your heart towards a brother, you've already committed murder. What does Jesus do? They had taken, you've heard it said, honor your mother and father. But then you lowered it down to a level where you said, well, if you tell mom and dad, hey, this is for your good, and then you cuss them out, you're okay. Jesus says, you've lost the standard. And that's why you think you can actually fulfill it. There's no standard that we can match that would actually allow us to ascend into heaven because the only way you can even make yourself think you can achieve that is to bring Christ down. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what does it say? What does the word of salvation say? What does the word of faith say? What does, what does God have to say? The word is near you even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith with which we preach. Simple. It's right here, right here. That if you shall confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Isn't that simple? (laughs) I love that. 
For with the heart, man believes unto righteousness. You know, it's the moment you believe in your heart, God says, I give you that righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. You make that confession of faith and man, we welcome you into the body of Christ, right? But it happens, it starts in the heart. For the scripture says, whosoever believes in him shall not be ashamed. God will not turn them away. So Peter reminds them of his experience with Cornelius. And he reminds them that salvation, like we just read, is an internal matter. He says in verse 8, And God, which knows the hearts, he bore them witness, Cornelius and his family and his friends. He bore them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did to us. God, who knows the hearts, literally means God, the knower of hearts. I like that. It's just who he is. He always knows what's in our hearts. In other words, they hadn't even verbally professed faith, but they were already saved because it had happened in their heart. Romans 10.10. Righteousness comes the moment we believe in our hearts. Salvation is recognized when we make a profession of that faith with our mouths. And because God knew this idea of Gentiles being saved would be so counter to their culture, God took the witness stand on their behalf by baptizing them with the Holy Spirit the moment they believed in their hearts. So that Peter would go, whoa! And everybody else said, whoa! This is crazy! They're, They're already saved? How is this possible? They don't have to become Jews? (laughs) nope. He reminds them that everyone needs cleansing from sin. Verse nine, and he put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. See, if you were a Jew and and you had some type of ceremonial uncleanness, if you weren't circumcised, which that was even worse, but if you had some part of you that was not ceremonially or ritually clean, you could not go and partake in the tabernacle worship or at this time, the temple worship. And as a result, you would be separated from God. And so for the Jew to conceive of a Gentile, a dirty Gentile, not being cleansed in some way first before being able to come to God in a ritual way, they just thought, well, that's impossible. How can they come to God? But Peter says he put no difference between us and them. Purify. That word purify means to cleanse from ritual contamination. He had cleansed them from their ceremonial impurities. And he says, how does he do it? Purifying their hearts by what? By faith, right? By faith. Not works or ceremonies. This calls to mind the truths that David said in Psalm 51 when he was busted with his own sin. And he said this, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you shall make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. He says, create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. David, in that same passage, he's going to say, sacrifice and burnt offering, you're not looking for that. Ezekiel 36, you can read it on your own time, verses 25 through 27, the prophecy of the new covenant, where he said, I'll take their heart of stone out and I'll put a heart of flesh in there. And behold, I'll make a new covenant with them and their sins and their iniquities while I remember no more. That's good news. Paul will later use the argument that Abraham was declared right with God 15 years before he was circumcised. Therefore, circumcision can't be a requirement of salvation. I'll let you do your own study on that. But I love Peter. And this is where things start to really slip into that holy place. Because Peter in verse 10, he reminds them of their own failure to keep the law. He says, now therefore, why? Do you tempt God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? 
He says, in light of the fact that God has already answered this question clearly, we have no reason to even debate this. He says, why do you tempt God? Why are we even here? The word there, test or tempted, means to put on trial or to examine thoroughly. And Peter rightly proposes that their problem isn't with Paul or Barnabas or Antioch or even Gentiles. Their problem is with God. And that's not a good thing. (laughs) It's not a good thing when you've got a problem with God. When people have a problem with the church, it's not a problem with the church. It's a problem with God. Well, the church is full of hypocrites. You're right. You're right. And that's why he saved us. The church is always going to be full of hypocrites. And if you ever find one that isn't, you can't attend. (laughs) If they have their way, they're going to go against God and do something horrible, which is put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. Jesus, he had told these guys, yoke in with me. My yoke isn't heavy because I'm the one doing all the lifting. And they were going to add to Jesus's yoke. They're going to add their yoke, their improvement upon Jesus's yoke. And you know, it gives me the shivers to think of the audacity of legalism. How does anyone bring an additional product to sell when Jesus is the only thing we need? How much greater are Jesus? How dare we bring anything else to sell? And man, to be a fly on the wall at this point in the conversation, because Peter asked these sincere but incorrect men to take a good hard look at their own history. In looking at the failures of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, or David, did anyone in that room seriously think that any of those men were saved because they were circumcised or by keeping the law? Did any of them seriously believe that? Did any of them think that any of them Any of them were right with God because they kept the law? (laughs) As Peter speaks in verse 10, it has that same solemn feel to it when Jesus stooped down to write in the dirt as the men who were ready to throw stones at the woman caught in adultery. Did Peter maybe reflect on his denial of Christ or did some of the Pharisees reflect on how they were enemies of Christ during his earthly ministry, maybe even voted for his crucifixion? Or maybe did James, the Lord's own brother there, reflect on how he mocked his brother because he thought he had a Messiah complex. No, there wasn't a single man in that room who thought they were saved by keeping the law. They all knew their only hope was the grace of God. And Peter reminds them of that in verse 11, that their salvation rests in faith alone. He says, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. We believe, he says, no, Not a single one of us think that any of us was saved. Anybody in our history was saved by keeping the law. Every single one of us in this room, we're trusting for Jesus to be our rescuer and that he does so freely because of his grace. We believe that through the grace, not circumcision or anything else, we shall be saved even as they. And these are the last words of Peter in the book of Acts. And if there's ever way to go out, this is it. Ted Williams In his last at bat, he's one of the greatest hitters in in the history of baseball. In his last at bat, he had a home run. And that's a way to go out, right? You knock it out of the park, and then you just keep going right to the car, right? You hit home plate, and you just, boom, you just right to the dugout, right in the, take a shower and right to the car. I'm done. You you don't want to ever mess that up, right? You don't ever mess that up. And this is Peter's walk-off. Game over. I'm done. His final words in the narrative story of the New Testament should make it clear forever that legalism of any sort has no place in Christianity. None. Because whenever men gather together, whenever a group gathers together in the name of Christ, we all can look each other in the eye and say, I am here, but by the grace of God. 
And that is it. Verse 12, then all the multitude kept silence. Well, how can you argue with that kind of a rebuke? (laughs) Everyone knew Peter was right. So they let Paul and Barnabas tell their story. And so they all kept silent and they listened. They gave audience to Barnabas and Paul declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. Just like with Peter, God took the witness stand to confirm the reality of what was happening in these Gentiles as well. And isn't that what we want in our church? Rather than being known for how talented we are, or where the jeans wear in church, or where the suit and tie church, or where the contemporary Christian music church, or where the traditional music church, or whatever it might be, we're the circumcision church, we're the homeschool church, we're the Judaistic church, or we're the free church, whatever it might be, we can put all sorts of labels on there because you can walk out that door, drive down any number of streets, and find it. How about don't we want to be known for God being in our midst? That he is testifying to what we're doing? So verse 13, after they had held their peace, nobody's got anything else to say. James answered. James was a senior pastor at Jerusalem. He listened to all the other leaders and to the congregation, but in the end, the decision was his. And he answered saying, men and brethren, hearken unto me. James does what the pastor is supposed to do. He led from the front, even though he knew his decision might be unpopular. I want to challenge you. Don't ever aspire to leadership if you plan to hide behind other people. Don't ever aspire to leadership if you plan to hide behind other people. Verse 14, he comes out and he says, Simeon has declared how God at the first, and he uses his Aramaic name, which they would be more associated with being Jews. Simeon has declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written, After this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof and I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, says the Lord, who does all these things. I love that. Isn't that what a pastor is supposed to do? To take us back to the scriptures for our answers? That's what he does. James is a good pastor. And he says, this is what we hear from the word. God said in Amos chapter nine, verses 11 through 12, and you can read that on your own time because there's a lot of good context to go with here. But Amos nine, verses 11 and 12, which is what he quotes here. It marks a turning point in Amos's heavy words of judgment to God's people. God, he says, would have mercy upon them. God would rebuild them. God would bless them with the purpose being that they might be a blessing to the rest of the world. What a great set of verses to share in light of this topic. Everyone in that room knew what they deserved. They deserved God's judgment, but God had been merciful. God had blessed them. God had rescued them and he had rebuilt them. He'd rescued them from legalism and he'd rebuilt them up in his grace. And to withhold that blessing from the rest of the world would be a slap in God's face. And so he says, verse 18, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. He says, listen, guys, none of these events caught God by surprise, nor did they occur outside of his purveyance. James points out that whatever objection anyone in that room dare bring, it falls flat because God was behind what was going on with the Gentiles. And so in verse 19, he makes his decision. And I love it because he says goodbye to legalism. He kicks it right out the door. Wherefore, my sentence, based upon the scripture and the testimony of God through Peter and Paul, I give my judgment, literally is what he says. I give my judgment and it's this, that we do not trouble them, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Do not trouble. The word there means to cause extra difficulty. There was going to be enough cultural hurdles to jump in this new thing Jesus had done without us adding to it. And then in verses 20 and 21, he says, but 
And he knows that this will not be an easy pill to swallow for the average Jew. In fact, it could hinder the church's outreach to the unsaved Jews around the world. And so he says, I do have this word of exhortation to share. And he says, but that we write to them, let's write to them and let's tell them that they should abstain, that they should stay away from pollutions of idols, from fornication, from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time has in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. James says, listen, he says, I wanna make sure that we want them to know that we love them. We are not putting any burden upon them, but I don't want them to be a stumbling block either to our outreach to the unsaved Jews in the world. So here's something that I, I wanna do. I wanna write to them and just exhort them and remind them that there's some things that they can do to help not be a stumbling block. And you know what? All this stuff makes sense. First off, pollutions from idols, idolatrous rituals. Listen, it would be very hard to witness to the Jews in a city if the Christians were seen hanging out in the temple of Zeus, right? Hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Be like, okay, Jesus, but you were just hanging out with Zeus a little bit earlier today. So why should I listen to you? Jesus is just another one of your gods. And so let's stay away from this. And in particular, the idea of buying meat. And I don't wanna get into that because the Bible will deal with this in a whole nother section of scripture. But Paul will talk about it in his letters and give specific instructions about that. But the idea was is stay out of that area, okay? Secondly, fornication. And I don't think what he's talking about here is in their personal life because that's a given, right? I know it's not in our culture today, but that's a given. Sexual morality is a no-no, okay? There are not 50 shades of gray, all right? There's one shade, well, unless you call black and white, but there's clarity from God that the marriage bed is holy and to be undefiled, right? That's what it says. So outside things are never to be brought into that circle and things that occur within that circle are never to be taken outside, right? So they already know that. But James is saying, stay away from places where sexual immorality is going on, all right? Don't go to the bar to go get a drink where you know there's gonna be ladies there that are half naked. Okay, guys, get your wings from somewhere else. And then the thing strangled and bloodshed, the idea of drinking blood and not bleeding the animal out, that was very offensive to the Jew back then. They said, listen, it's not that you have to eat kosher, but just please, when you kill the deer, don't go drink the blood and assimilate its soul into your system. You can do all the killing and hunting and all without doing that part. All these things were prevalent in pagan society and Jews everywhere would hear about these evils every Sabbath. That's what he says. Moses of old time has preached. They hear about the evils of these things. And so he's saying, help us reach them by avoiding connection with the places where these things happen. And you know what? I think that's reasonable. He's not laying a guilt trip on them. He's not telling them it's they have to do that to get saved. And we have our own policies here, right? Don't we? At Calvary Chapel, we have a children's ministry, right? Why? Why have a kid's ministry? If you're a parent and your child's ever sat with you, you know why. <laughs> because as I'm talking about something that they have no clue what I'm talking about, they are fidgeting and miserable and whatnot. And the whole time you're trying to focus and keep them quiet. So we have an environment for them where they can learn the word of God in a way that's at their level and understand it and be taught it so that you can then talk to them and say, hey, what did you learn about today? And well, we're in, because they're in Acts as well. What did you learn about? We're an ax. And what did you learn about? I do it with my kids every Sunday. What did you learn about? And then it spawns spiritual conversation where we can fellowship. If it was in this service with me and I said, sweetheart, what did you learn about today? She'd go, how miserable church is. That's what I learned about today. 
Because mom can pinch at me trying to keep me quiet. <laughs> we ask you when you come into the church, if you have to get up during the service, that you sit in the back. And don't get mad at the ushers if they tell you that. That comes from the top. The reason we do that is because this is important. We don't want to distract people. Just like they didn't want the Jews to be distracted from salvation. What if somebody's here for the first time and doesn't know the Lord? And I'm right there preaching the gospel and sharing it. And you make everybody get up and you get down and get in your seat. And they're like, I don't even know what he's talking about. Right? It's not because we're trying to be fuddy-duddies and you can't do this and you can't do that. And it's not some legal tripper like, you can't be saved if you come back into the service and you sit down in the front. But it's the idea. It's like we want to make sure that we're being considerate of others, right? And that's what he's asking them to do here. Be considerate of the Jews that we're trying to reach as well. William Barclay said, peace will never come to a man until he realizes that he can never put God in his debt and that all he can do is take what God and his grace gifts. The paradox of Christianity is that the way to victory is through surrender and the way to power is through admitting one's own helplessness. It's a good quote. Have you said goodbye to legalism in your life? You know, if, if you're not a Christian today, if you, you've never repented of your sins, put your faith in Christ, that's what I, I, I say that. And that's what I mean when I say that. If you've never come to that place of absolute helplessness where like all those men in the room where Peter said what he said and they're looking around at each other and he says, guys, <laughs> we couldn't carry this yoke. We want to put it on somebody else. If you've never come to a place where you've recognized you can't get to heaven by being a good person, then you need to say goodbye to legalism. You need to come to a place where you say, God, I know I've fallen short of your glory. I know I have sinned against you and I want to be forgiven. I want to have a relationship with you. And I believe the only way that that's possible is if I put my faith in the fact that Christ died for my sins, the fact that I don't keep your standard perfectly, that he died for me on the cross. And I put my trust in that. The Bible says, if you do that, as you read in Romans 10, right? He will give you his gift of righteousness. And as you confess it publicly, you'll be saved. Now, maybe today you are a Christian, you know the Lord, but you relate to God in legal ways. Oftentimes you get up and you're like, oh man, I can't read my Bible. I, I yelled at the kids this morning or, you know, I didn't get up early enough. And, you know, I, I know God wants me to probably read it during my break. But, you know, if I do that, that's not really my routine. I, I should do it in the morning because I should give God the first part of my time. Maybe you're struggling with that. And that's how you, you walk through your Christian life and you feel condemned all the time. It's a good day to say goodbye to it as well. Today's a good day to say, you know what? I'm not relating to God like that anymore. He has washed me. He's cleansed me. And I just don't want that burden walking around anymore. I want to yoke in with him where he carries the load. And that no matter how my morning has started or no matter how my week has gone, no matter how my month has gone, no matter how the last year has gone, today is the day I'm going to draw near to him because I can, because he paved the way. Amen? Let's all pray. Lord, we just seek your face right now. We don't want to have legalism a part of our life. We don't want to relate to you in a legal way at all. And so Lord, for those of us who maybe it's a daily battle, a daily struggle to just come to you, feel like we've got to do something or we've got to accomplish something or we've had to have met some kind of a standard before we can come to that throne of grace. Right now, I just ask you'd set us free. Even as there are those who might be fighting it, right? I think, oh, I don't know, can I really do that? Can God really just take me as I am? Or that you would just speak those words to him and say, yes. 
Yes, my sentence is this. We trouble you no more. Lord, you don't lay any trip on us like that. When you convict us, you bring that loving conviction that says, my, my daughter, my son, come to me. I want to work on this. I want to change you. I want to work in your life. That's your voice, Lord. That voice of condemnation that keeps us from you, that's the enemy. Lord, we want to tune that out and listen to your voice and say goodbye to the other one. And maybe there might be some here, Lord, who don't know you. If you've never put your faith in Christ, you've never repented of your sins, you've never come to a place where you said, God, I know I'm not good enough. I know I'll never be good enough, but I believe you died for my sins on the cross. I want to put my trust in you. I want to be saved. I want to be forgiven. If you've never done that before, I'd love to pray with you to receive Christ. You want to be born again. You want a fresh start with God in that sense. You're not going to try to to do it anymore and be righteous on your own, but you want to be forgiven. You want to be saved. Lord, we thank you so much that you have washed us. You've rescued us from our sins. So now let's be reminded that we stand clean before you and therefore we can worship you and you receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407 407- 523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Strong.